0: Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights. It's brought to you in partnership with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, a group of companies from tech and biotech, nonprofits and community organizations located in the San Francisco Bay Area, and all committed to improving the lives and health of people around the world. It's also brought to you in special partnership with Roche Molecular Sciences, Now, this is World AIDS Day, and it's that time of the year when we remember the huge impact that perhaps one of the first zoonotic infections has had on humanity in the modern age. That is to say HIV, like SARS-CoV-2, originated in animals and jumped into humans. And with HIV, we know that certainly for the time being, we've been able kind of to control the virus, through the use of antiretroviral treatment. Well, here we are at the end of 2020, and we're seeing that there is some interesting scientific data coming out about vaccines. We've seen the Pfizer data, well, we've seen hints of it. There's Moderna, there's AstraZeneca, and in a couple of weeks, there will be the emergence of data from Johnson and Johnson. So many things to be excited about. But perhaps one of the things that is most intriguing about this year and the impact of COVID-19 has been the way that the world's attention has been turned to diagnostics. And in fact, it's diagnostics that we're going to focus on in this episode. We're going to be talking to Dr. Paul Baum, who is the head of clinical sciences at Roche Molecular, and he's also an associate professor at the University of San Francisco in California. So Paul, welcome to A Shot in the Arm podcast. Thanks, Ben, great to be here. Well, a real pleasure to have you here. Now, Paul, you have a fascinating career. You are an infectious disease specialist with a particular interest in diagnostics. Um, how did you get to this point? What, what grabbed you about diagnostics?
1: Well, maybe I'll start with infectious diseases. It's been um, a really fascinating field in part because we understand a lot of the pathogenesis of disease. There's so many other areas of medicine where we actually don't really understand why people get sick, and infectious diseases, it's usually pretty clear. And um, in part, uh, that really makes diagnostics an important part of the field because uh, we know what we're looking for. We know that we can um, understand the cause of disease and monitor patients being treated for disease. So um, diagnostics is, is really, for anyone in infectious disease, is a really central part of the discipline.
0: As we are learning um, in COVID-19 these days as well, diagnostics has this, this central place. Um, but for people who don't know, I mean, many of our listeners and viewers will know Roche Molecular from its collaboration with the Clinton Health Access Initiative on early infant diagnosis and and dry uh, blood spot technology that you've used in Southern Africa. Um, but, but what does Roche Molecular do? What's its area of interests? So our
1: focus is primarily on PCR technology.
0: So we are basically
1: making uh, diagnostic tests that look for the genetic uh, information in, in organisms, DNA or RNA. We have some other technologies as well, but the core technology is PCR. Uh, And what is PCR? So PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction. It's a Nobel Prize winning discovery that basically allows us to um, take one uh, piece of DNA or RNA and amplify it to many, many uh, times that. So it's actually one of the most sensitive uh, diagnostic technologies there, there are because it basically can detect as little as one molecule.
0: And, and that basically, uh, for the lay audience, tells you <clears throat> whether you have the virus, whatever the virus is, that tells you that there's a piece of that, of that infectious agent in your, in your body. That's right. So we,
1: we are able, in the case of coronavirus, for example, to, to find um, uh, the virus and say whether um, this virus, uh, nucleic acid or, or genetic material is present or not. In some cases, like we do for HIV, we can make the test quantitative as well. So it's not just saying
0: whether something's present or absent, but saying how much is there. Yeah. And, and I guess when, when COVID hit at the beginning of 2020, how difficult was it for y- you guys to sort of turn on a coin and, uh, and then devote your attention to this new coronavirus?
1: Well, it, it's never easy, but we were in a very good position to respond. So um, we had a couple of things in our favor. Um, the first is that we um, knew that there would be some sort of uh, pandemic coming down the road. Uh, for people in infectious diseases, the question about pandemics is not if they will happen, but when. So we had actually started in um, 2018 to look at our um pandemic response and um, to look at how we could potentially do a better job and get tests available faster. So we set up a, a, a team uh, to look at how we would monitor outbreaks, how we would make the decision to respond, and then um, how we would uh, um, get the actual tests produced and distributed as quickly as possible. So that's that's one thing. Um, the second thing in our favor is that We actually have a very well-characterized instrument and assay system for um, PCR. So we have a lot of um, reagents that are used in all of our assays, and we have computer software that allows us to take the genetic sequences of organisms and very quickly um, design assays that are very likely to work well in the laboratory. So this um, can compress what used to take maybe a year into literally weeks um, to come up with with an assay.
0: It's both organizational and technological advances that helped us respond. Um, As well as preparation. I mean, many of us thought uh, the big one, the next big infectious disease outbreak, was going to be some version of the uh, influenza virus. Um, And so we were a bit surprised that it was a coronavirus. Um, Did that have any impact on you, or or, or were you not so surprised?
1: We had been thinking about it, I mean, I think, uh, you know, in, in hindsight, SARS and MERS were um, forerunners, also coronavirus uh, epidemics. So, so we have been looking at coronavirus, um, but the nice thing about PCR is basically any virus or any bacteria, any fungus, they all use the same uh, nucleic acids uh, as part of their genetic structure. And that means we can design assays to detect any of those kinds of organisms.
0: So perhaps the um, uh, silver lining in the cloud, if you like for 2020 has been that it's really accentuated our interest in diagnostics you know I remember uh, working I suppose for decades in trying to promote access to HIV treatment around the world. And it was very hard to get people's interests into, you know, that first stage, the the diagnostic. You know, it was the sort of the uh, the ugly stepsister of of HIV treatment, um, and yet things have completely changed this year, almost to the point where we've we've sort of almost thought of uh, good and cheap and easy diagnostics as a as a mag- magic bullet. Uh, but but that isn't the case at all. And I I I know that you and many others working in the diagnostic space have have spoken about the tests um, and the range of tests as being part of a solution, part of a continuum. Um, and I wondered if you could just sort of reflect a bit on that.
1: Yeah, so um diagnostic tests obviously by themselves are are not the solution. It's important to uh, figure out how you're going to manage the patients. Um, and honestly, even in the absence of a specific treatment, managing the patients uh, can be a challenge, as we see with with uh, Ebola historically. Um, and then we also need to obviously uh, work towards vaccines. And there's been a lot of uh, very uh, promising news on that fun- front recently. Um, but the need for diagnostics doesn't go away. So even if we are successfully rolling out uh, vaccines across the world, which will probably take a couple of years in the best case scenario, I don't think anyone seriously th- thinks that we will eradicate um, coronavirus. Uh, you know, it's, it's been difficult enough to eradicate smallpox. Mm-hmm. And um, really we're gonna have to live with a coronavirus and so diagnostics will continue to play a role in helping us uh, figure out uh, emerging areas of epidemics and and making sure that uh, those are quickly addressed wherever they occur in the world.
0: So it reminds me, Paul, of the very early days of HIV treatment. And you may recall that I was working for the late ambassador, Richard Holbrook, in in getting companies to scale up uh, HIV services. And he was really obsessed by HIV testing. And his view was that, you know, you get people tested, and if they're positive, you put them on treatment. Um, and if they're negative, you put them on condoms, as it were. And you know the reality is so so much more complicated. Um, and here we are in 2020, COVID nineteen, and I'm working with a number of uh, authorities, in in, in particular um, the um, the territory of Guam, trying to work out what the 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 particular balance of PCR of um, antigen and antibody tests the the balance of uh, point of care and lab tests and it, it's really quite quite complicated. Um, and I think one of the things that um, would be really helpful to understand more is that I think many of us lay people think of antigen and antibody tests as essentially the same thing but they're not are they? No they're, they're pretty different when from a clinical
1: point of view it's actually the the PCR test. And the antigen test that are more similar and they're more similar because both of them are looking to detect parts of the virus Um, and so they're basically telling you whether the virus is present or absent and the antibody test is actually different because the antibody test is looking not for the virus directly but for the immune response uh, against the virus and so it tells you that someone has uh, been exposed to the virus or in the future may be useful to, to tell, tell us that someone's been immunized and has a successful immune response against the virus.
0: One of the trends, I guess it's been happening um, a fair amount over the last few years, but this year has really accelerated it, is the move to self-care. Um, and obviously, as many of us in the industrialized world shelter in place, um, you know, the individual, the patient having more control over their um, uh, all aspects of their exposure with other people, including healthcare workers, is, is to be welcomed. Um, but it also has applicability for the global south, which doesn't have the kind of intense infrastructure that would otherwise be needed. And, um, you know, whether it's laboratories or, um, you know, trained healthcare professionals all on site. And so I wonder Particularly given Roche's heritage in um, laboratory-based testing, what's your sense of of the uh, of the trend towards self-care and you know more tests being done at home? So self-care is an important
1: trend, as you say, Ben, and um, it's really important both in um, uh, low-resource settings as well as uh, globally. Um, so the value of um, being able to um, collect one's own specimen, for example, is not just convenient for a patient, um, but can also potentially really make the system work better. So if you um, think about what it takes to collect a nasal swab in a clinical setting, there's gowning and and masking involved. So if the patient can collect his or her own own specimen, that can really uh, make things much more efficient uh, and save a lot of money. Um, and then bringing the test to the um, where the patient or, or person is, is also obviously very important. And um, as we see in, in Africa right now for HIV testing, it's really a mixture of different technologies um, that allow us to bring HIV testing um, to the patient. And um, we expect to see similar trends with coronavirus as well. There are obviously limits to self-testing. So one of the difficult things about um, coronavirus is patients can become gravely ill without mm-hmm. a lot of warning. They can have very low oxygen in their blood and um, suddenly crash. So um, people won't be able to completely manage uh, coronavirus in their home, uh, but we can certainly um, go a long way towards uh, diagnosis at home and, and give people the tools to, to complement the healthcare system.
0: And and I think, you know, a, a particular challenge for us is around people with uh, who are asymptomatic have no symptoms no symptoms, um, and who may, you know, may be at risk of, of spreading. And um you know, clearly diagnostics um are going to have a, a major, major impact there. I I was wondering as we look both about vaccines, you mentioned this earlier, Paul. Um we've seen a a really rapid acceleration of um research um and attention um and I, and I wonder you you sort of referred to it earlier but as the world and you know the scientists at roche molecular turned their attention to to covid-19 uh, were there particular things to the extent you're able to answer this were there particular things up your sleeve that you were able to Adapt quickly, or or was this sort of almost a sort of all hands on deck? We you know we we really need to um, just push here in ways we haven't done before. Yeah, so
1: it definitely was all hands on deck. People have been working very hard to to meet the need for diagnostics, but we did have several things in our favor. So as I mentioned before, we um, do have a very well characterized diagnostic platform which means that we were able to um, design a test that was going to work well very quickly um, and we're able to manufacture it also very quickly because a lot of the reagents that we use in our our products um, can be shared from assay to assay. So we had um, those factors in our favor, Um, but still a a lot of work to scale up manufacturing, which is um, at levels we had never previously reached um, and a lot of effort from a lot of people to make the
0: tests available. And then, sort of downstream, we also see uh, regulatory bodies responding to to this crisis. And you know, we're we're all talking about the FDA's um, emergency authorization process, and we've you know, just now we're seeing it with the. Um, uh, availability of uh, uh, a treatment for those that are quite sick. The the Regeneron and the uh, outgoing president of the United States had that, and he arranged for some sort of compassionate use to go to uh, the outgoing uh, HUD secretary, uh, Ben Carson. and And that's terrific. That's absolutely wonderful. And it does speak to the kind of flexibility uh, particularly that I think was driven by the AIDS movement in the early days to make sure that we had um, access to to products, medicines, and diagnostics when we had emergencies. But do you think um, that what we're learning now should become, you know, part of the part of the pantheon part of the the normal way of doing things? Or are these kind of rapid approvals uh, really more, more relevant to emergency situations?
1: Yeah, I think for the most part, Ben, I, I think these are really limited to emergency situations. So when the FDA um, sets up a, an emergency use authorization pathway, um, they very deliberately lower the bar. They, they um, ask for less validation, less evidence of clinical uh, effectiveness than, than would normally be required to get a um, a product approved. And so, and they're doing that because they know it takes time to to do a thorough job at this and they need to get a diagnostic uh, test available. Even there, there has to be some balance, right? So you want a test to be as v- available as quickly as possible, but you want to make sure it has at least some accuracy, some worth, uh, and will help patients rather than hurt them. Um, so so I would say we really do need to limit this to to areas of emergencies and and Um, do a more thorough job of of, um, validating and reviewing uh, diagnostics where it's not an emergency. However, I would say one of the real pluses of of the emergency use authorization experience is FDA's real effort to uh, work interactively uh, with uh, manufacturers, whether this is town halls or answering questions literally within hours. to help the products get through the process as quickly as possible. So um, I think that collaboration has been very positive and, and I hope that that continues uh, even after uh, the pandemic has resolved.
0: One of the things that's, that's sort of quite interesting in the way Roche has approached things has it's been its commitment to partnerships and we, we spoke about this earlier with the Clinton Health Access Initiative work in Southern Africa on early infant diagnosis and Uh, Roche has also been working with uh, public health authorities um, in South and Southeast Asia, and I've I've certainly been a part of those uh, collaborations. And that principle of collaboration is at the heart of the work that the Bay Area Global Health Alliance does, which is a partner on these these podcasts. And as we enter this sort of uh, era of pandemics literacy, I wondered, Paul, if you could comment on just what the value of partnerships are in, you know, building our scientific knowledge, but also then implementing that and sort of helping broaden helping broaden the access to uh, the fruits of our scientific collaboration. Yeah,
1: so partnerships have been very important to us for HIV uh, in some of the ways that you mentioned uh, and in others as well. So we've, uh, for example, uh, partnered with PEPFAR. To create a a training lab for diagnostic testing uh, in uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. So this this partnership is just an example of where we can um, work together to make sure that um, the uh, Sub-Saharan Africa has uh, access to um, the laboratory expertise that's needed to to, to bring diagnostics uh, to people who need them. Um, And Scientific collaboration is very important as well. Um, We wouldn't be able to design a good coronavirus test, for example, if researchers around the world didn't make coronavirus genetic sequences available um, freely and and rapidly um, to allow us to to design the test um, according to those sequences. Um, And then, as you mentioned in implementation, um, Roche uh, really has benefited from the expertise of Chai and other organizations um, to help bring uh, HIV diagnostic tests um, uh, to um, people who need them uh, as well as collaborations with other institutions.
0: Yeah, and, and and again, all credit again to the early infant diagnosis work that you know was able through the use of dry blood spots, Uh, to get tests or or, or to get uh, samples very rapidly collected. Um, uh, Yeah, I mean, maybe the technology has moved on, maybe it hasn't, but uh, I thought that was a really winning combination. Now, Roche Molecular is part of the multinational Roche Corporation, uh, which is headquartered in Basel in Switzerland. And, And I just wondered, what has the experience been like of you know working from home sheltering in place in clinical science which is essentially um a multi-team multidisciplinary effort how have you all managed to do that and and are there any experiences that you think would be helpful for large or small companies that are that are struggling to you know to keep going at the moment yeah so
1: i i would be remiss, be remiss if I didn't mention that we do have a significant number of people who can't work from home. These are the people working in research labs, uh, doing clinical studies, and doing manufacturing to to make our products available, both on the diagnostics and on the pharmaceutical side. But as you mentioned, a lot of people, certainly in our function, clinical science, uh, as well as the majority of people at Roche, uh, we are working from home. And this for us has been really a cultural shift. Roche was One of these companies where we were really um, expected to meet in person wherever possible. And because we're based in different countries, we're often flying around the world in order to to have those meetings. And so I think most of us have been pleasantly surprised by how well a lot of the digital tools for meeting have worked, um, including digital collaboration tools, um, but also just uh, routine conferences. Um, And one of the things that I never really thought about, but um, someone mentioned the other day is usually we would have meetings and and maybe 80 percent of the people would be in the room and then one or two people calling in. And that was always really hard to manage. And Mm -hmm. now everyone's on the same footing. They're all uh, participating from home. And it's actually a lot easier to make sure that everyone is included in the meeting and all the ideas uh, and suggestions are heard. So in, in some ways, it's actually been quite Advantageous for us as a company.
0: Yeah, I think it is. Humans adapt, and we adapt to different circumstances. But I do think there are um, there are benefits. I mean, I'm seeing it here. You know, just just stuck at home working. Um, you, you won't notice it now, but um, normally uh, beside me, I have two dogs. Um, and they're normally very well behaved during the course of the day. But when I start having conference calls at five or six o'clock, that's truly witching hour. And I can, I can get um, uh, deeply disturbed. So I'm, I'm glad they're not with us at the moment. So just one final question, Paul. How have, uh, how have you and your family coped? What's kept you sane it's a question I ask all our guests, but really interested to know how you're holding it together and, you know, any suggestions you have for binge watching.
1: <laughs> well, I would say one of my major activities has been walking. So um, I've been really getting I've been using walking to get around, but also getting to know the city. And, and I've lived in San Francisco for 20 years, but I'm really um, discovering some new areas of the city I had never seen before. So that's been that's been a lot of fun. And um, I would say the one other thing that I've taken from the pandemic, if you will, is a um, some existential truth. So, uh, a lot of us have had these things that we had on our list to do if we ever got around to it, if we ever had the time to do it, whether it's cleaning out an attic or reading a long novel uh, or, um, you know, organizing photos. So... This is the opportunity for those of us uh, who are um, sheltering in place. And so it's actually been really useful. You, you find out what are the things you actually are going to be able to do and what are the things you, you probably won't
0: do, uh, and then you can use that to, to plan your life around that. So, so dare I ask, any very long 19th century novels or treaties that you've been, uh, you've been dipping into over, over, the, over this year?
1: So I've been starting Remembrance of Things Past. I think that's uh, quite, quite a long one, uh, but I haven't made it all the way through. So we'll see, we'll see
0: how I do uh, for the rest of the year. Oh, my gosh. That is quite... That's really something to take on. Well, Paul, thank you so much for being on A Shot in the Arm podcast. We really appreciate it. And thanks to you and your colleagues for all the hard work you're doing. And, you know, you really, really clearly see the impact that you are having on lives right around the world right now. Um, You have our huge gratitude and we wish you all the well, uh, all, all well as we enter this next phase of the pandemic. Paul, you are a shot in the arm. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you very much to Dr. Paul Baum. Thank you to Sarah Anderson and everyone at the Bay Area Global Health Alliance and thanks to Erica Aspera, our director and producer from Newsdoc Media. And finally, thanks to you. As always, we'd love to know what you thought of this episode. And if you have any suggestions about future episodes, you know where to find us. We are at Twitter and Facebook at ShotArm Podcast. And you can find this and all other episodes on the podcast provider of your choice. So it just remains for me to wish you a safe and a healthy week. And don't forget, let's see if I can do this properly. Don't forget to wear your mask.